All right, good to see you tonight. Open up your Bibles, please, with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. We're getting close to all the good stuff. Well, I don't know if I go that far, but uh, yeah. When people think of the book of Revelation, they think of chapter 6 through 19. So we're getting there. Uh, last time we were in Revelation, we broke for the holiday, but last time... We got as far as chapter 5. Let's read verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, as we have already seen at the beginning of chapter 4, John is zipped up into heaven. We believe that is the rapture in view there. And so he gets zipped up into heaven and... He is immediately taken back, as you can well imagine, at what he sees. Um, it goes beyond his ability to describe it. Uh, because here's a first century guy trying to describe what we would consider in some ways, although nothing Hollywood produces could come close to what heaven looks like, I'm sure. But we have a little better idea uh, with all the special effects that we're used to in movies, uh, what John was seeing, he tries to describe it, he does his best, but we studied chapter 4 and what John saw in that chapter. Now, in chapter 5, as John looks at God the Father on his throne, he, he notices something in the Father's right hand. As John looks more closely, he sees that the Father has in his right hand a scroll, a scroll. As we said last time, Scrolls in John's day were usually made of 8 by 10 inch sheets of papyrus, which were connected horizontally, uh, either sewn or glued in some way. And uh, depending on how long the document or the book was they wanted to record would depend on how long the scroll was. We said that the scroll of Isaiah, 45 feet long. And they would just keep putting these pieces of 8 by 10 inch uh, sewing them together and keep le lengthening the scroll depending on what they wanted to record. And of course, it would wind it around two uh, spindles and then roll it towards the center. And that's how they would do it. The Greek word for scroll is actually biblion. Biblion. It's the same word we get the word Bible from, but in the Greek, it's a word that means book. Book. However, John is describing a scroll, not a book as we would think of one. And uh, again, such scrolls were very commonly used in John's day before the invention of modern binding and giving us books that uh, we're used to and all. But as I said, guys, back then papyrus was really uh, the main source of material they would write on. And as we said last time, uh, papyrus was made from papyrus reeds that would grow up around the Nile River down by Egypt. And they would cut these uh, reeds uh, down and then they would split them in half and uh, open them up, scrape out the pulp, and they would use the inside to write on, but they would have to flatten it. Then they would weave the, the reed halves together like a bas picnic basket kind of a thing. And then they would pound that flat and they would buff with pumice stone the what was at one time the inside of the reed, the softest part. They would pumice it, make it smooth, and that was primarily the side that they would write on. Most parchments were written on that one side. The other side was very, very coarse, rough, so they typically wouldn't write on it, but that softer, smoother side they would. However, we read here that uh, John sees a scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Now, from what I understand, only really important documents were written on both sides, like wills or deeds. And uh, while Roman law, from what I understand, Roman law mandated that wills had to be sealed with seven seals, I don't think this scroll is a will. I think it represents a deed. A deed. We looked at uh, these title deeds last week in Jeremiah 32, verses 6 through 15. So you can check that out on your own. Uh, we talked about it. So even the Bible records uh, these kind of deeds. All right. 
And, uh, but let me just stop here and give you some important background information. Land in Israel was never really sold. Do you realize that? It was never really sold because the land belonged to the Lord. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? So if you couldn't pay off a debt back then as a Jewish person, you could sell your land to your creditor, but it was really only a lease agreement. And it would, by law, have to contain a redemption clause whereby if you suddenly came into some money, you could redeem the land back and take full possession of it once again. Redeem it back if you had the money. If something happened and your rich uncle left you an inheritance or something, you could then take that money. And So every lease agreement had to have by law a redemption clause. Now, if you had a blood relative, what the uh, Jewish people called a near kinsman, the uh, Hebrew word is goel, all right, goel, uh, and they had the resources. Well, they could go ahead and uh, redeem the land for you. In other words, pay off your debt, and the property would once again be yours to use for farming or whatever else you used it for. Now, if you didn't have any rich relatives and you owed quite a bit of money, it was probably going to take you maybe the rest of your life to pay off this debt, which meant your land was really, for all intents and purposes, now your creditor's. God made provision that once in a person's lifetime, they got a fresh start. So every 50th year in Israel was the year of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee. Very important year if you were a Jew. In the year of Jubilee, three things happened. All right, here they are. All debts were canceled. All slaves went free. I'm talking about if a Jewish person couldn't pay a debt and put themselves into slavery to another Jew... In the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all debts were canceled, all slaves went free, and all land reverted to its original owners. So that was the year of Jubilee. This was such an important element in Jewish culture and law, the law of redemption, that God had one whole book in the Old Testament written about it, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is the story of a kinsman redeemer named Boaz, who is a type of Christ, who redeemed a piece of land for a relative, Naomi, who becomes a type of the nation of Israel, and in the process married Ruth, a Gentile bride who was a type of the church. That's a great book. You've never really studied it. I encourage you to do that. But this scroll uh, in the Father's right hand, what exactly is it? Well, there are different ideas. I mean, commentators have a n number of ideas about what it is. I'll tell you what I believe it is. I believe that this scroll is the title deed to the earth. Remember now, uh, very important documents like wills and deeds, like this, like a title deed, uh, was written on both sides, sealed with numerous seals. Seven was the one I'm thinking of, though, seven seals. I believe this scroll is the title deed to the earth. One scholar agrees with this interpretation and adds this. He said, and I quote, The scroll John saw in God's hand is the title deed to the earth, which he will give to Christ. Unlike other such deeds, however, it does not record the descriptive detail, the descriptive detail of what Christ will inherit, but rather how he will regain his rightful inheritance. He will do so by means of divine judgments about to be poured out on the earth. Those start chapter 6, verse 1. While the scroll is a scroll of doom and judgment, it also is a scroll of redemption. It tells how Christ will redeem the world from the usurper, Satan, and those men and demons who have collaborated with him. Ezekiel describes this same scroll in his vision of heaven, and then he quotes Ezekiel 2, verses 9 through 10 which read, Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. You're going to see this as the book of Revelation now gets into the judgments. And at one point, they quote that from Ezekiel. 
how that God's judgments are called woes, okay, woes. Um, you see that in the Old Testament. And when you see the word woe in Isaiah or some other place, understand God is pronouncing judgment. All right, we see that quite a bit in Revelation. But, but let me stop here again and give you a little more background information that will help us to understand uh, what is going on here. Chapter 5 is a very important chapter, a pivotal chapter in many ways, and we don't want to miss anything. So let me stop and give you a little more background information so that uh, we can all better understand what really is going on here. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? In fact, the whole creation belonged to God by virtue of creation. In other words, God made it, therefore it belonged to him. All right? Pretty simple. But then God gave the earth to man. When I say to man, I mean Mr. and Mrs. Man. Uh, mankind, Adam and Eve. All right? When he created them and placed them in the Garden of Eden. At that time, God told them they were to have dominion over the earth as its caretakers. Genesis 1, 27 and 8. In other words, they were to take care of the earth, treasure it as a beautiful gift from God. But then Satan took the form of a serpent. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We're just reviewing what is going on here. I have to go back to Genesis, right? But then Satan took the form of a serpent and tempted Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree God had forbidden them to eat from, lest they die, he said. Eve was fooled by Satan's deception. We know that. Uh, she bought the devil's lie. He promised her godhood would come to her through enlightenment. In her case, her eyes would be opened if she ate from the tree of the knowledge that today many are pushing the idea that man can become god and that all you need to do is be enlightened to your own divinity and so on and there's different ways today for people to achieve enlightenment yoga transcendental meditation ouija boards crystals and so on uh meditation of some kind uh, but back in the garden of eden uh, Satan used the very thing God had forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to be the thing that he told Eve, look, if you eat from the fruit of that tree, don't listen to God. Uh, he's just, he wants to keep you from something he's discovered. And that is that through, the, through this knowledge, uh, you'll ascend, you'll be enlightened and ascend to Godhood. Well, she bought that. She bought that. And she ate the fruit. Then she gave some to Adam, and he also ate and immediately they died. God said, in the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. Well, they did die, but not physically. They died spiritually, right? Which meant their fellowship with God was cut off because God communed with Adam and Eve, mankind, spirit to spirit. And now that man's spirit had died, he was severed from God. Man, today, everybody born since is born a two-dimensional creature, body and soul, soul is consciousness, but no longer a three-dimensional creature as God originally created man to be in his image. God is a triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God made us a triune being, spirit, soul, and body. Of course, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, their spirit died, their nature got flipped upside down. Now the body became uppermost, and the soul or the consciousness now existed to make the body happy, to satisfy body appetites and, and, and sex and drink and, and all this stuff that we see people indulging in today. Um, but not only did they die spiritually instantly, their sin set in motion something called the second law of thermodynamics. I'm sure they didn't know, know that at the time. I barely understand it now, uh, as I've done a little research and all. But the, uh, the, the, the law, second law of thermodynamics means everything is wearing out, running down, going from order to disorder, integration to disintegration. We're all getting old. We're, no sooner are born, we grow up, but we're really growing old. And eventually we, we grow old enough and we finally die, Right? I mean, galaxies are coming to an end. Stars are burning out. This is all entropy that's taking place. 
Second law of thermodynamics. So in the Hebrew, is interesting because God actually did say, the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, the Hebrew is literally dying, you will surely die. So, you know, again, they didn't die physically immediately, but they did set in process the aging, the entropy, and eventually they did die physically, as all of their descendants do uh, in this life. We're born, but we grow up only to grow old and die. But I really want you to, to remember that uh, the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest thing, I think it was the biggest thing, was that when they ate the forbidden fruit, their fellowship with God was broken because their spirit died. Their spirit died. What they probably didn't understand at that time, they did come to understand it very well later, what they probably didn't understand at that moment was that in eating the forbidden fruit, not only was their fellowship with God severed, they transferred ownership of the earth and all it contained into the hands of Satan. In the wilderness, when Satan tempted Jesus three times, right? Remember that? With regard to the third temptation, we read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him, Jesus, up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. You'll notice, guys, that when Satan said in verse 9 of Matthew 4, all these things I will give you, it implies they belong to him. They belong to him. All these things I will give you because they're mine. And I can give them to whomever I will. If you will fall down and worship me. Notice that when Satan said that to Jesus, the Lord Jesus didn't, uh, didn't um, challenge that or contest what the devil was saying. Because Jesus knew it was true. In fact, it had to be true if the devil was going to use it as a temptation on the Lord. You can't be tempted by a lie if you know it's a lie, right? I mean, if Satan wasn't telling the truth, it would never have been a temptation to the Lord Jesus. In fact, Jesus would have said, Satan, you big fat liar. You don't own the world. Where are you getting off coming with this stuff? You don't own the world. But the Lord Jesus knew that it was given to him by Adam and Eve. The ones God gave it to in the first place. They transferred ownership of the world over the, the devil. When they ate of the forbidden fruit, that one act of disobedience toward God was an act of obedience towards the devil. They didn't realize it at the time, all the ramifications. But in that one act, well, the earth became, uh, Satan became the world's new owner and man's new master. We'll talk more about that next time. But... Um, and so the earth which God had given to them uh, was now turned, or they now turned it over to Satan, and he became the earth's new owner. And Satan, guys, has control over the world to this day. Satan has control over the world to this very day. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul called Satan the God of this world. The God of this world. And it is Satan who has introduced into this world, all of the evil, pain, heartache, sickness, injustice that we see going on every day on the evening news and is getting worse. It's all the result of Satan, who is now the earth's owner, the god of this world, and he has introduced into it all these horrendous things. And uh, he was the reason, the people, the devil was the reason the people to whom John was writing were watching. Uh, when, when John wrote his, um, the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, Jesus told him, write the things that I'm going to basically show you uh, so that people in the future know what's coming. So that people, I'll, I'll paraphrase, so that uh, all the people throughout the church age and into the tribulation period can read this book and know what's coming. So prophecy, right? That was the, a big reason 
But a secondary reason was that in the first century, the church was enduring some horrific persecution, starting with Nero, right? And he was a real nut job. And uh, he just really persecuted the, the people of God. Uh, and all he would, uh, and, and the church wanted to know, well, where's God? Where's God in all of this, you know? Um, they were being fed to the lions. They were being incarcerated. Uh, they were being crucified. They were being dipped in boiling hot tar pitch and wax at times. History records for us that Nero, to say he was imbalanced would be an understatement, would have Christians uh, uh, have poles run through their bodies lengthwise, cover them with pitch, tar, and light them on fire while he drove his chariot uh, through his fields or his vineyards, with, uh, which were being lit by burning Christian bodies, while he screamed at the top of his lungs like a madman. Now, Peter said, pray for him. Okay? Uh, pray for him. Okay? That's what we do as Christians. We pray for enemies. That's who we are. It's what Jesus told us to do. But, um, but, but they were wrestling with this. Where's God? You know, we're the people of God. Why is he allowing us to go through this? And um, the book of Revelation, guys, was written, yes, to know what was coming in the future. But it was a book that was also written in part to deal with the sufferings of the present. Again, again questions that John's sheep and other congregations going through great persecution then in the first century and then down through the centuries Christians have wrestled with this since the beginning of the church age if God is all powerful and all good why is there evil in the world why are there wars cancer floods child trafficking depression rape murder and injustice I mean doesn't this prove that God isn't an all good all powerful God or even that he doesn't exist at all that is something that in the face of severe hardships, persecution, adversities, there are those Christians who wrestle with these questions. Apologist and author Norm Geisler wrote, and I quote, The most powerful argument ever devised against the existence of God is this. If an all-powerful God exists who created the universe... And if he is all good who put morality into the heart of man to show us that he is a good and moral God, then why does evil exist in the world? If God is all good so that he would eliminate evil, and if he is all powerful so that he could eliminate evil, and yet evil is not eliminated, therefore an all good, all powerful God cannot exist. He could be partly good and partly powerful. But he can't be both, because if he was all good, he would eliminate evil. If he was all powerful, he could eliminate evil. And since evil has not been eliminated, no such God exists. Now, if you will indulge me, I'd like to spend the remainder of our time tonight um, on a little bit of a side trip. I realize it deviates from our study in some ways. However, it is really the foundation for understanding the whole book of Revelation. So in that regard, it's right on, okay? It's right on. And that is this issue. If God is good, why is there evil in the world, and why doesn't he do something about it? I mean, if he's real, if he's all good, all powerful, where is he? Now, if you've heard me teach on this before, bear with me. Because I think right here in Revelation 5, as Jesus steps forward to take the scroll out of the Father's right hand, which is the title deed to the earth, the very earth he bought and paid for on Calvary's cross and is now going to be taking possession of by first though bringing judgment to destroy the wicked, it becomes very pertinent, very relevant to our study in the book of Revelation. So bear with me if you've heard me uh, teach on this before. I think it bears repeating tonight. As I said, many Christians have wrestled with this dilemma. It's not really a dilemma, but to them it is. Uh, for centuries, usually during times of great persecution against the people of God. Uh, but during that same period of time, all throughout the centuries, when Christians were wrestling with, if 
God is so good, why are we persecuted? Why are we being killed? Why does evil seem to be winning? During that same period that Christians were wrestling with this, atheists and skeptics were using this very argument as their primary weapon against for proving uh, that God doesn't exist. It, it, it was their prime. It still is their primary weapon against the existence of God. I'm going to quote Norm Geisler quite a bit uh, because he did a whole series on this, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, so I'll just pull pieces of it out and all. But uh, Norm Geisler goes on to say that for the atheist and skeptic, they believe that this is an airtight argument argument against the existence of an all good all-powerful God. Again, if God is all-good so that he would eliminate evil, and if he was all-powerful so that he could eliminate evil, yet evil is not eliminated, therefore an all-good, all-powerful God cannot exist. The problem, as Geisler points out, is that with that argument is that it is built on a faulty assumption. A faulty assumption. That just because evil hasn't been eliminated yet, it never will be. And Geisler said, and I quote, if the atheist phrased the argument correctly, it wouldn't prove his point. If he said there is an all-good God who would eliminate evil and an all-powerful God who could eliminate evil, and since he hasn't yet eliminated evil, he can't exist. Well, if the question was phrased like that, our response would be, just because evil hasn't been eliminated yet, doesn't mean it won't be eliminated someday. I mean, if the atheist could say with all certainty, if God is all good, he would. If he was all powerful, he could. Evil has not yet been eliminated, and it never will be. Geisler said, therefore, and they would say, therefore, no such God exists. Now he's got, Geisler said, a good argument against the existence of an all good, all powerful God. I mean, if an atheist can say the question this way, uh, if God was real, he's all good, all powerful, so he could, you know, uh, eliminate evil if he wanted to, and he was powerful enough to do it because he could, uh, he was powerful enough to do it, um, but evil still exists and will never be eliminated, well then, that would be a good case against the existence of God. However, the only way anyone could make a statement like that would be if they themselves were omniscient. Or in other words, had all knowledge, knew the future perfectly, which only God knows the future perfectly. The book of Revelation, which we are studying, I guarantee you we are. We'll be back into it next time. But the book of Revelation tells us that one day God will settle all accounts and eliminate all evil. All right? I mean, criticizing God for not doing it right now as someone has said, it's like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not reconciling or solving the plot yet. The story's not over, right? The story is not over. Now, the atheist would argue, if God is all good and all powerful, and he made everything, then where did evil come from? I mean, God must have created evil. Maybe you've heard this which means he can't be all good or evil would not exist. Now, folks, that argument goes back at least as far as Augustine. At least as far as Augustine. Augustine, in 400 A.D., said, and I'm quoting him, to say God created everything, evil is something, therefore God created evil, is to miss the real nature of evil. God is the author of everything. We accept that premise. But evil is not a thing. It is a lack in a thing. Hence, it does not follow that God is the author of evil, end quote. Well, Geisler elaborates a little bit for clarity. He said, evil is a privation or a lack. Evil is like rust to a car or rot to a tree. It's a kind of parasite. It exists only in something else. The Bible teaches that a good God created a good universe, but gave man a good thing called free will, which allowed for the possibility for evil to enter God's universe and corrupt, and corrupt it, end quote. God made evil possible by giving us a good thing called free will. I like the argument that Geisler brings up. 
He said, you know, God made evil possible by giving us a good thing called free will, just like Henry Ford made every automobile accident in America possible, along with the pain, suffering, and fatalities they caused. Are cars and evil, excuse me, are cars then evil along with the man who created them or invented them simply because the people driving those cars haven't always acted responsibly behind the wheel? I don't think any of us would go that far, right? Even so, the Bible teaches that this world is not the world God originally created for man to live in. We messed it up. When I say we, I mean man, Adam. Okay, Adam. He messed it up when he disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit. The question is, did God know we were going to sin before he made us? Yes, of course. How do we know that? Well, he knows everything, first of all, but we know for sure, Revelation 13, verse 8, it tells us all who dwell on the earth will worship the Antichrist, the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So even before God made the world, he knew man was going to sin. And therefore, in the mind of God, even before man was even created, God saw, God had the plan of redemption uh, in his mind and already saw Christ on Calvary's cross dying for the sins of humanity. So no, God was not taken by surprise. As we said a week or so ago, our God knows everything and he doesn't have to quickly move to plan B because his plan A failed and so he's now panicking. What am I going to do? Oh yeah, I'll put that plan. No. Uh, our God knows exactly what's going on, what's going to happen, and he's already planned for it. And so the, another question arises, if God knew before he ever created us that we were going to blow it, why did he let us? <laughs> why didn't he stop us? You mean force us, right? You mean force us. That would have removed our free will and turned us into robots. And God did not want to create robots. He could have, right? He could have made robots that he just programmed, but you don't have to be God to do that. Man can do that. I don't know if you've ever been down to Disney World or Disneyland. Um, they've come quite a, quite a way with uh, animatronics. They've got robots down there that honestly look very lifelike and move in a lifelike way, and they have them speaking and uh you know uh, they have an exhibit where they have past presidents you know and and they they rise one at a time to speak and movements of their arms and things and wow uh it's pretty spectacular right man can program robots is my point you don't have to be god to do that but god didn't want robots god wanted people who would love and obey him freely from their heart without being coerced True love cannot exist unless freely given through free choice and will. Norm Geisler said, forced love is rape and God is not a divine rapist. Well, rape is not love at all. It's a control thing. But I understand where he's coming from. All right? I understand where he's coming from. He goes on to say, the classic defense of God against the problem of evil is that it's not logically possible to have free will and no possibility of moral evil. In other words, once God chose to create human beings with free will, then it was up to them rather than God, to God as to whether there was sin or not. That's what free will means. Built into the situation of God deciding to create human beings is the chance of evil and consequently the suffering that results, end quote. And right here the skeptic cries, Aha, so God did create evil. He is the creator of evil. Well, I like what Lee Strobel said in his book, the Ca A Case for Faith. He said, and I quote, No, he created the possibility of evil. People actualize that potentiality. The source of evil is not God's power, but mankind's freedom. Even an all-powerful God could not have created a world in which people had genuine freedom, and yet there was no potentiality for sin. Because our freedom includes the possibility of sin within its own meaning. 
It's a self-contradiction, a meaningless nothing, to have a world where there's real choice while at the same time no possibility of choosing evil. To ask why God didn't create such a world is like asking why didn't God create colorless color or round squares, end quote. Because it's impossible. Another question comes up. If he knew we'd bring so much evil and heartache into the world, why did he even bother to create us in the first place? Now, these are questions, common questions, that skeptics and atheists will ask. I've tried to build a study around them, okay? And just following a logical progression of thought. Uh, okay, if God knew we'd bring so much evil and heartache into the world he made, why did he even bother to create us in the first place? It's a legitimate question. You parents, when you decide to have children, there are no guarantees. You hoped and prayed for a healthy baby, but there are no guarantees that your child was going to be born handicapped, deformed in some way, maybe had Down syndrome or something, or if the child was born normal. There was no guarantee that when they grew up, they were going to be a model citizen. That they maybe wouldn't go down a wrong path, even though you tried hard to teach them the right way. There's a lot of unknowns when you decide to have children. So why do we have them? Because we have this love inside of us as husbands and wives, and we want to share it. And the same is true with God. The Bible says that not just... God doesn't just have a lot of love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And God wanted to share that love with us, even though it would be messy, to say the least, even though there would be problems, which he knew very well, between creation and culmination, in other words, heaven, there'd be, you know, there'd be problems. God knew that. Yet, he still wanted to show his love to his creation. Someone has said, and I quote, the only way to get to the promised land was through the wilderness. The only way to form diamonds is to put pressure on coal. The only way to produce first order good is to allow second order evil. If you never allow evil, you'll never be able to defeat it. If you don't allow sin, you'll never have the higher good of forgiveness. If you don't allow tribulation, you'll never produce patience. God permits evil, but listen, he does not promote evil. End quote. Another question. Yes, but evil is bad. If God is good, why doesn't he protect us from it? Well, first of all, let's again state, this is not the world God wanted us to live in. This is not the world he created for us. The world he created was all good. All good. But again, he didn't want robots, and so he made man with a free will. And then let him make his choice, whether to obey God or disobey God. But all the evil that is in the world today, that has ever been in the world, has been the result of man's sin, Romans 5, verses 12 to 14. And all because Satan is now the God of this world. And now that man has exercised his free will in rebellion against God and has brought all these negative consequences upon the human race, listen, God is using the consequences of our sin and rebellion to break people and to bring them to Christ. It was C.S. Lewis who said in his book, The Problem of Pain, I'm quoting him, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our, con in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to arouse a morally deaf world, end quote. So God will allow pain because oftentimes it's the pain that will bring people to him. It's like he designed our bodies. Um, 
you ask somebody, you're talking to your, a friend, and uh, they just they told you they just had a, 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 a an operation, serious operation. And you said, wow, uh, what tipped you off? Something was wrong. I started getting pain here or there, right? It was the pain that drove them to the doctor to, uh, to find out what the problem was, which led to the surgery to correct the pain. God has allowed this world, a world we have chosen for ourselves. I mean, obviously, in this room, I'm not saying that you're responsible for all the problems in the world. Okay, I'm not going that far. But I'm just saying, mankind, all right? Mankind is responsible. And what mankind has done to his fellow man has created a lot of pain, all right? Or just sin that people have committed themselves. The alcoholism or the drug abuse or whatever it might be. Sexual promiscuity that has landed them with some incurable venereal disease. There's pain, much emotional pain, sometimes physical pain. And often that pain drives a person to the great physician. I mean, how many professional athletes were at the top of their game making huge amounts of money, right? I mean, just superstars, and they blew a knee out in football or something and ended their career. And it wasn't until the pain of that uh, career-ending career injury that drove them to God. I mean, we see it all the time, right? We see it all the time. God will whisper in our pleasure. He'll shout in our pain, often because people grow dull of hearing. Uh, because the pleasures of the world are very enticing. And they get wrapped up in the cares of this life, and they become dull of hearing, and God has to shout. How does he do that? Through adversity, trials, uh, pain of some kind. But God also uses pain um, to develop his kids, to develop his kids. It's called sanctification, which makes us more and more into the image of Jesus, Second Corinthians 3.18, right? That's the Holy Spirit's uh, ministry in our lives as Christians. He's conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. How does that happen? Again, through trials and adversities. We're going to study John 15 shortly on Sunday morning and how that adversity is like a pruning knife that the Father uses to prune away things in a, his children's lives that are sucking the energy uh, away from their devotion to him and service to him. Whatever the and, and vine dressers know them as little sucker shoots. Sucker shoots, because they suck away energy that could be directed into the, into the grapes, making them even larger and more luscious and so on. Jesus said it's the Father's desire that we, be, that we as his children bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit. But a lot of things in life sap away the energy that should go into our walk with God, into our ministry for God. So God is a way of pruning those things uh, from our lives. But let's be honest, guys, there are some things that we couldn't learn, some ways in which we couldn't grow if it wasn't for adversity. How about Romans 5? Turn there quickly, Romans 5. You know these, Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. Where Paul says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And so there's a lot of virtues that we would never be produced in our lives without adversity or tribulation. They produce a lot of wonderful things that uh, are good for our Christian life to produce. How about James chapter 1? James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, counter it all joy when you fall into various trials. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you. Um, you got to be a spirit-filled Christian when you read that and say amen. You know you're spirit-filled, okay? So a lot of carnal Christians would read that and would run screaming. Or if a preacher 
in one of these churches that they've gravitated to uh, begin to preach on this, that trials are good, they flip out. In fact, they've gravitated to churches where the pastors teach all trials come from the devil. All good comes from God, and that is blessing and, and prosperity and good health and your business prospers and you live in the nicest house in town and drive the nicest cars. You see, that's what a lot of churches are teaching today. Paul said it. He said, in the last days, many in the church would not want to hear sound doctrine any longer, but would gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear. But we who are spirit-filled, spirit-filled mature believers understand that the only way we're going to grow is if we have some adversity in our lives. Even the Arabs recognize this. They have a proverb, all sunshine makes a desert. You need some storms in your life. You need some adversity. Uh, if you're going to develop and grow well in a well-rounded way, not only as a person, but as a Christian, okay, as a Christian. But uh, let fall, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. Look, Geisler admits, and let me quote him, that tribulation, adversity, pain produces good things in our lives. No, it's not what, what we really want. It's what we need. He said, and I quote, This is not the best of all possible world, but I think it's the best of all possible ways to get to the best of all possible worlds. A true believer is something like tea. <laughs> Their real strength comes out in hot water. God permits suffering to produce the greatest virtues in us. Job said, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold, end quote. And so God allows pain to bring about the greater good. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, every athlete, especially an Olympic athlete, goes through incredible pain and suffering in training. Why? For the joy and glory of victory. If victory wasn't greater than the suffering it takes to get there, well, no one would ever endure it. So every athlete endures pain to bring about the greater good, end quote. But secondly, guys, for the people who can't understand why, why if man messed up this world, God doesn't just fix it, okay? Doesn't just fix it. Lord, just fix it. Why aren't you just fixing it? Some folks can't understand that. They just can't understand why, okay, like, okay, we acknowledge we messed the world up. It wasn't what you designed. Man did it. We did. Why can't you just fix it, Lord? All right. Uh, make it problem-free again. Those who feel that way, guys, are harboring under a faulty assumption, and that is that the absence of all suffering would be the greatest good for mankind. Think about that. There are people that think that the absence of all suffering, all trials, all tribulation would really be the best result for mankind. Or to put it another way, they feel a God of love would never and could never use suffering or pain for our good and for his glory. The question is, is it possible that God could use suffering and tragedy to teach us important lessons that help us grow as believers while drawing us to God in a way nothing else would? Or in other words, can God use what Satan intended for evil? Can God use it for good? That's a question we all have to wrestle with. And if you really come to terms with that issue, then you will never ask again, why is there evil in the world if God's a good God? There is evil in the world because God has given man a choice. Satan, some people say, why is Satan exist why why does god let the devil exist because he's serving the purposes of god what do you mean god gave us a free will a free will is meaningless without a choice if there was only god you know you, these communist countries they talk about you know fair elections there's only one you know one person on the on the ballot 
God allows Satan to continue because he's serving the purposes of God. He's providing a man with a choice. A choice. If there was no choice other than God, we wouldn't have a free will. We have to understand that. Is it possible that God could use suffering and tragedy, adversity to teach us important lessons that we could never learn any other way than through these things? And of course, you know the answer is yes, of course, God can use those things. God can use good for good what Satan intended for evil. Can he? Yes. In fact, he already has. He already has. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. God has already demonstrated how the very worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world ended up resulting in the very best thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room? I'm sorry, at this time now, they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem on their way to the Mount of Olives. He continues the discourse. He began in the upper room. And at one point in chapter 16 of John's gospel, he said, in a very short time, you're going to be, I'm going to paraphrase, you're going to be devastated, talking to his disciples. You're going to have great sorrow. And again, I'll paraphrase. You're going to think the worst thing in the world has just happened. My crucifixion. Because I think he's going to lead them in a revolt against Rome and establish the kingdom, right? I mean, they believe he's Messiah. He believe, they believe he's their king. And as a king, he, he's going to lead us in battle against the, the Romans and overthrow the yoke of Rome and, and, and establish his kingdom uh, where he's going to reign over the entire world from Jerusalem. But Jesus said, in a very short time, you're going to be filled with great sorrow because in your mind, the greatest, the worst thing that could have possibly happened has happened. But then in a, in a short while, your sorrow will be turned to great joy where you realize that the worst thing you thought could have happened actually turned out to be the best thing. By Jesus dying on the cross and three days rising from the dead, he, he made it possible for all of us to have eternal life in heaven forever. Don't forget the God who said, the soul that sins shall surely die is also the same God who said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Guys, when it comes to suffering, on account of sin. God took his own medicine. God took his own medicine. By becoming one of us and suffering more than any of us would ever suffer if we had lived a thousand lifetimes. One author said, How could you not love this being who went the extra mile, who practiced more than he preached, who entered into our world, who suffered our pains, who offers himself to us in the midst of our sorrows, what more could he do? And then John Stott said, and I quote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world around him. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. 
The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours, end quote. Well, still another question. Some people at this point would ask, I'm, I'm still having a problem understanding why a good God permits so much evil in this world and why some Christians die young and evil people live long. Well, the psalmist wrestled with that in Psalm 73. You can read that on your own, okay? You can read that on your own. But J.B. Phillips, who gave us a great paraphrase of the New Testament, he said, and I quote, if God were small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. And that's just the bottom line, okay? Turn to Deuteronomy 29 as we bring this so close. God were small enough to figure out he wouldn't be big enough to worship. I love Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Translation, there's a lot about God we don't know, can't understand, and won't, at very least, until we get to heaven and see him face to face. And I still think it's going to take us eternity to learn more and more about God because I just don't think he's going to just zap us with all knowledge once we stand in his presence when we're raptured. That's me. Maybe he will. I kind of think part of the joy of heaven is we're going to be learning about God for all eternity. I think the word in your lap, I think you, we have no idea how complex the Bible is. Do you realize Hebrew and Greek are languages that have, the letters have numerical equivalents, which means in your lap you have a mathematical equation. And scientists have begun to unravel some of it, and it's absolutely astonishing. One Russian scientist put together 50,000 pieces of paper he did, um, uh, you know, he took the numbers in the Bible and he just worked all these equations out and said, here's 50,000 papers. He presented it to some scientific body. Uh, this, is, this is my proof in my mind why the Bible is definitely the word of God. After reading his work, they said, we have to agree with you. And today we have computers, right? I mean, I think it's going to take us eternity to understand Everything God put in his word. So that'd be, and, and the beautiful thing about it is I won't be doing the Bible studies anymore. Amen. <laughs> Jesus will be, remember the afternoon he rose from the dead on the way to Emmaus, the two disciples walked with him. He gave him an Old Testament Bible study. Oh, I wish I could have been there for that. To hear Jesus teach the word. Remember the chief priests, scribes sent the temple police to arrest Jesus was teaching in one of the temple areas, right? And they came back and they were empty-handed. And the chief priest said, where is he? You're supposed to go arrest him. He was like, they were like dazed. No man ever taught like this man. Wow. I can't wait to hear Jesus teach the word, right? But until then, as somebody said, our brains are like thimbles. And the knowledge of God is like all the oceans, and this is a this illustration falls apart, can't even begin to capture all of it. But think of your brain being a, the size of a thimble, and the knowledge of God like all the ocean, waters of all the oceans on the face of the earth. Try to fit all of that into that thimble, right? It's bound to be a lot of spillage. So, guys, says, I, you know, I'm doing my best with you. All right, you're not going to. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my, your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Wow. I, 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 I can reveal to you some things, but you are not going to understand me. I am so much bigger than you are. Um, so just take what you can and be happy with what you can understand. And never think you've arrived. God wants us to keep learning, but all the while realizing that if he was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. Sometimes God will call, as we're, we're done, but sometimes God will call, talk about 
God allowing us to go through adversity, suffering, pain, because it produces good things in us. It's not what we want, what we need, though. Sometimes God will call upon his people to suffer for his glory. And even to have loved ones taken from us too soon. It hurts. It's painful. At those times we need to keep looking up. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. I'll read it to you out of the NLT too. That is why we never give up. Though our outward, excuse me, though our bodies, physical bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day, the inner man. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things we cannot see, heavenly things. Keep looking up. For the things we see now on earth will be gone soon. But the things we cannot see, the spiritual things, they will last forever. So the question again, why doesn't God put an end to evil and suffering? He intends to. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. That's what it's all about. It's about God saying, the time has come. I'm going to wrap things up. I've given people plenty of time to choose. Me or the devil, basically. The time has come to wrap it up. For Jesus to come back and take possession of what he's bought and paid for on Calvary's cross. But before that, he has got to dispossess the world from the usurper, the devil, and his minions, his armies, which will try to go to war against the Lord Jesus Christ when he breaks through those clouds at his second coming and they're waiting for him in the valley of Megiddo because the Bible is very clear exactly when he's coming back 1260 days after the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple of Jerusalem they know when it's going to be and the Antichrist has got them so deceived that he's God and maybe he has taught them they can be God just believe strong enough you know and so on that when Jesus comes back, they're gathered with all of us, by the way. We're riding white horses, breaking through those clouds on our way to earth where Jesus will establish his kingdom. But here they are in the Valley of Megiddo with their, you know, Apache helicopters and uh, surface-to-air, you, know, uh, you know, missile launchers. And, you know, here he comes, you know, get ready. I just, what a joke, right? Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens says, what? Laughs. Gabriel, get a little of this. you got to see it. Look at them. They think they're going to go to war against me and be victorious. Well, there is no battle, right? Jesus speaks the word, and they're vaporized. You know? The blood splashes up to the horse's bridles four and five feet throughout the valley of Megiddo. Our God is, he is God. We don't worship a God. We worship the God, the true and living God. We don't serve a king. We serve the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's coming back to take possession of what he's bought and paid for. And the reason he has taken his time is because he wants to give people a chance to repent. He's gathering a people. He's been doing it for 2,000 years, ever since the church was age began on Pentecost. But that's what the book of Revelation is all about. And he's given people a chance right now to choose where they're going to spend eternity. Is this their home, earth? Are they earth dwellers? Those who have made earth their home, they think nothing of heaven or spiritual things. This is all they know. This is all they want. Or are they going to bow the knee to Jesus and acknowledge their sin and embrace him as Savior and be a part of his kingdom forever? Yeah, you know, I'll just close with this. C.S. Lewis nailed it in his book, The Great Divorce. Not about marriage, by the way. <laughs> the Great Divorce. In that book, he, he said, In the end, the world will be made up of two groups of people. Those who have said to God, Your will be done, and those to whom God will say, Your will be done. What does that mean? Well, 
For those people right now on the earth who bow the knee to Jesus Christ and they say, Lord, my life is yours. Your will be done. Whatever you have for me, you're my master. You're my God. I will obey what you say. Not my will, right? Remember Jesus in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. Christians. But someday, people are going to stand before the Lord, and he will say to them, not my will, but your will be done. I wanted you to be with me in my kingdom. I loved you. My son died for you. I had my arms open to you. I was, I was pleading with you, Ezekiel 18, come to me, right? Come to me. I love you. I don't want you to go to hell. But you wanted to do your own thing. You wanted nothing to do with me. So even though I didn't want, that wasn't my will to send you to hell. It's what you wanted. And therefore, now it's not my will be done, but your will be done. And in the end, guys, that's, a, that's the only two groups that are ever they're going to be um, standing in front of the Lord. So may God give us grace. People want to get upset with God because this world is a mess. Yeah, well, look in the mirror, you know? I mean, we've made it a mess. Well, I haven't. Well, maybe you haven't contributed a lot. But you're a sinner, right? I mean, you know, don't tell me you never sin. And every time you sin, somebody gets hurt. Something messy happens. Something that goes against God's will takes place. So we're all guilty. And right now we need to bow the knee and say, Lord, I am a guilty sinner. But you died for sinners. You died for me. Thank you. And I receive you, Lord Jesus, to be my Savior. Come into my life. Take control. Be my king. I surrender my life to you. Not my will anymore, but your will be done. That's what we have to do. All of us, and I know many of you have already done that. Praise God. We have to keep praying for people we love that haven't done that that are fighting God for whatever reason. Who knows? You know? Looking at this world and blaming God. That, that is the most ridiculous thing. To look at this world, a product of our own sin, and, and, and use it to blame God as if it's his fault. May God give us grace. Next time, God willing, we will get back into Revelation. There's some very interesting things uh, coming in chapter 5. One of them is one of the most controversial um, passages you'll find in the book. We'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love with, with which you loved us, that love that sent your son down to die for us. Lord Jesus, you were a willing sacrifice. Nobody took your life from you by force. You gave it freely for the sheep. And we thank you, Lord. And we ask that you give us grace now to live for you. That, Lord, you would give us a burden for the lost like we've never known, Lord. Uh, a genuine love for them. Uh, even those who hate us, they're not our enemies, Lord. They've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. In this very hypercharged, uh, very hot, uh, emotional, political climate we're in, give us grace as Christians to just keep remembering uh, folks on the other side, they're not our enemies. Uh, Lord, you love them, Jesus, you died for them. Open their eyes. Give us grace to love them into the kingdom because that's what you want for us, Lord, to love our enemies and to pray for them and to be a witness to them. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.